Big Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our ongoing operations rely entirely upon the generous donations from our supporters. If you've been impacted by our faith lessons, we ask that you would consider including Fig Tree Ministries as part of your annual giving plan. Secure giving is easy through the donate page at our website, figtreeteaching.com. We've also included a link below in the description section of this video. With your support, Fig Tree Ministries can expand our reach into the world, helping others just like you deepen their understanding of the Bible and connecting these principles to the transformative power of individual spiritual growth. All of this is so that we as a community can positively impact the kingdom of God in the world today. So may God richly bless you and all of your study. So we are Sea of Galilee, part 11. We're just going to keep going through these stories that are happening around the Sea of Galilee. And what we're going to do is we're going to do two weeks in a row on the feeding miracles, the feeding of the 4,000, or I'm sorry, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. Now, today is going to be mostly an introduction to some of the background of those feeding stories, and then next week we'll do a quick review, and as we swing back around, we'll go look in detail at each of the feeding stories. So this week, you may want to read both in Mark, I put the text at the top of your handout, you may want to read in Mark both the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, and then next week as we look in much deeper into the text, God willing, a lot of things will be illuminated. So the picture on your screen that I've chosen as a background today is a location at, near the Sea of Galilee that scholars propose is the place of the feeding of the 5,000. Where do you sit 5,000 people that aren't going to destroy a farmer's field? And you need a desolate place. The Bible calls it the Aramos Tapos, which is Aramos is uncultivated, unpopulated, often used as desert. And there's some discussion about what exactly that means. It's some kind of unpopulated, barren place. Now, it's this hillside right here. So you can see nothing is growing on that hillside. And it would be a, a good place for 5,000 people plus to sit down and get fed without, again, destroying a farmer's field. It's also the place the Mount of Beatitudes is put at. So, um, anyways, that's the location. Let me show you real quick on a map. So if we go to a... a we won't spend a lot of time on the map, but if we take a look at this map, you have Capernaum to the, on the north side of the lake. That's, that's one of the main cities, of course. You have Magdala over here to the west, and Mount Arbel, that's that giant mountain that we've kind of used as, our, as an anchor point. And the picture that you're looking at is taken from Mount Arbel, and it's looking in this direction right here where these words say the Mount of Beatitudes. It's actually that finger that sticks out, and this is where 
Again, scholars, if they're trying to figure out where, these, where the location of these events happened, they placed the feeding of the 5,000 right on the finger of that hillside. And if we go back to that picture, it just looks like that. So that's the hillside that we're talking about. And then a couple of weeks ago, if you'll remember, we talked about fishing at a place called Tabga, and that is right there on the shore. So a lot of stuff. I mean, it's a very small, compact place for a lot of events going on. And everything's happening right next to each other. Okay, so this is the hillside for the feeding of the 5,000. We'll talk more about why that's important, feeding of the 5,000. Okay, that's where we're going to be uh, located today geographically. If we do a preview of what we're going to talk about, so this is going to be the entire morning is going to be an introduction to the feeding miracles. Mir uh, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. Feeding of the 5,000 is recorded by every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Today, we're going to talk... Uh, a lot about narrative. And what we see in each of the Gospels, Matthew narrates what's happening. Mark narrates what's happening. There's very little dialogue that you see from Jesus. So it's all narration. And there's real power in narrative. Most of our Bible is narrative. So we want to talk today about narrative and how narrative that what emerges out of narrative is like a revealing truth that's not always explicitly stated in the narrative itself, but the details will build a picture, and it's very powerful. So we have to at least pause for a minute to talk about how we read narrative and why it's important the way that we approach these uh, texts. Okay, then we're going to look at, of course, the Old Testament, because so much the New Testament is rooted in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't have a New Testament. He only had the Hebrew Bible. Him and everybody in his audience are continually reflecting on the Old Testament as their point of reference. So when we see these two miracles, the very first thing that's going to come to mind for that audience is what's happening that comes out of our Old Testament. And one of the things that we'll see has to do with two prophets that were very they lived large in the minds of the first century Jewish audience. That's Elijah and Elisha. And one of the miracles is going to be almost a replication of Elisha. So that's going to tell us something. And then we're going to finish. We're going to finish with numbers because there's going to be a whole. Now we've spent a, we've spent a number of weeks looking at numbers and how numbers communicate. And as you read both the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, those are numbers. There are, they have numbers in them. We've, we've done this before, actually, but we're going to talk about numbers and how the numbers themselves communicate to us the revealed truth of what is happening with Jesus. So that's what we'll finish on. Okay, so let's start out with narrative. So narrative almost your entire Bible is narrative. Very little explains anything about God. It's mostly the actions of God, describing the narration of God and his people, the actions between individuals, the actions between 
people or the actions between God and his people. But it doesn't spell it out directly. And this is tough for Westerners. So you might, you read a book like Genesis, and we don't know what to do with all of those stories on Genesis. You go read, uh, say, the rabbis and the way they look at Genesis, and they're pulling all kinds of stuff out of Genesis that once you see it, you go, oh yeah, I think that is there. And it's because they're reading narrative differently than we often read narrative. So Westerners, us mod- particularly us modern Westerners, we almost entirely think systematically. And the Bible is not a systematic theology book. So it's a systematic theology in the ancient world is stories. They tell stories, and those stories speak then about something about God. So we're so used to systematic theology that we often prefer something like, here's a book that we used in in, uh, seminary. It's a Christian theology, Millard Erickson. And it's a 1,500 pages of step by step by step by step. Let's, let's create this statement of truth about God. We'll create this statement of truth about God. We'll create this statement of truth about God. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's very systematic, and it's unlike the Bible. This systematic theology comes much later, but this is kind of what we're used to. We're used to thinking theologically. We define ourselves through different doctrines. We say, well, what doctrine does, do you hold to that we don't? And that's kind of how we divide ourselves within different denominations within Christianity. So that's systematic theology. Now, it can be very helpful because we think that way. So for instance, there's a book by uh, Dr. Strauss, Mark Strauss, and he's got a book called Four Portraits, One Jesus. Now, Dr. Strauss is a biblical studies professor, so he's taking biblical studies, but he's putting it out in a systematic way. So what you'll find throughout this book is it's laid out for Westerners. Step one, step two, step three, step four. Now, I know you, you can't see the words on the page, but every page is built for a Westerner to read, where you get everything's outlined. Hey, let's compare these, and we'll give you little brackets, and then you'll have little side notes. And it's, uh, it's built very much for a Westerner. Easterners would never do that. They tell you a story, and then they walk away. And now you have to deal, wrestle with the story and the meaning. So it's a big difference between Westerners and Easterners. And as we look at these two feeding stories told in narrative, you have to then allow the narrative to the meaning to emerge out of it. That's the power of narrative. I want to do the best I can to say, how would those first readers or listeners of the Bible, the New Testament, heard these stories? What would they, how would their mind work, right? And we are low-context communicators. They're high-context. So we have to do a little bit of work to help us. This is where the, the narrative, the point here is that we often try to read the Bible as a systematic theology book instead of allowing the narrative to do the work. And maybe we're not trained to allow the narrative to speak to us. So um, one big point, and this is a, such an important point for those studying the Bible, is that we have to remember that there are styles of communication 
low-context styles of communication, high-context styles of communication, and we in the West, the United States, if you, if you put on the spectrum of countries, high-context to low, the United States is the lowest of low-context. We're a melting pot. So everything has to be stated explicitly for us to understand. If you go to the East, particularly in the East, it's high context. And so it's really important that we remember as Westerners, as we read this Bible, that we can't, we have to try to read it as much as we can in that high context. So let me just go through. This is review. It's not on your sheet. But a couple of things about the difference between low context and high context. We are low context. Everything is stated explicitly. Jesus is high context. He's an Easterner, and he's an ancient Easterner. So when he wants to tell you something, he tells you a parable. And that doesn't help us Westerners, because we say, what is he talking about? So in low context communication, everything's explicit. Everything I'm saying is right on the surface. I'm not trying to weave a story that contains my meaning. I'm just telling you the meaning right on the surface. Where in a high context culture, the speaker speaks with implicit meaning, the audience listens for implicit meaning. It goes back and forth. They expect implicit. And this is where you get, if you travel to a different culture, communication styles, you get miscommunication simply because one person speaking low context, the other high context, or thinking that. Low context is everything's right on the surface. So many people, when we read our Bible, you read only at the surface level. Nothing wrong with that. You can do that. But if it's a high context document, it means that the meaning is layered in. It's deeper. So we have to allow that some of that meaning to come to emerge out of it. Uh, low context, you don't have to have a, a knowledge of the culture to understand what I'm saying. But in a high context, communication, you have to know the culture because they're speaking in words that only the culture would understand. Now, you, you have this. In fact, all, if you have this in marriages, right? You've been married for a long time. You can say one word to your spouse and you both know what's happening and no one else around you knows what you're talking about. That's, you have all this knowledge of your marriage culture. You have church culture. You know, non-Christians walk into a group of Christians and they, what are they talking about? What are all these words? Salvation and redemption. And, you know, we have all these Christianese words. That's because they're cultural words. But for the most part, the United States is low culture, uh, low context. Okay, so low context is more individualistic societies. High context is collective societies because they're all collectively, they're used to be speaking collectively. In the East is collective cultures. And then finally, I'll say low context is more direct and high context is indirect. Now, as I've stated, we here in the West, especially modern Westerners, we are 100% low context. And if we walk up to our Bible, which is 100% high context, so it's ancient Near East, if you walk up to your Bible and you read it as a low context Westerner, what do you suppose will happen? Confusion will reign because we don't know what to do with these stories. So we have to work really hard to try to understand 
the context of um, what is happening. That's what biblical studies does. Biblical studies versus theological studies. Biblical studies tries to go back to the history, the context of the culture, to say, what would they have heard? That's what I try to do every single week when we get together, is to look at it through the lens of biblical studies, cultural, historical, in the first culture of the first century Israel, rather than through the theological lens of what doctrine are they talking about. That's, that's another way of looking at it. So, okay, this is going to be really important, because when we go back to narrative, Narrative is all about these details. You get a crazy story like Joseph uh, in the Old Testament, and then you think, what am I supposed to get out of this other than someone's taken into slavery? But you can draw tremendous meaning, and these truths come out of it the way that they tell the story, and it's all about those details of telling the story. So if we look at, say, this is our Bible, and you get to a point of narrative, the narrator is telling you the story. They're choosing what words to use. They're choosing the, the manner in which they lay the story out. They're narrating it. So it's all those stories we know from the Old Testament, Abraham and Joseph and David and, and the Gospels, the book of Acts is narrative. And, and so in narrative, we're always looking for those details. So you have detail, 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 detail. And what happens is, the more familiar you become with the narrative itself, the, more, the closer you, see, you can see the details, something begins to emerge. And I use that word emerge because that's what happens. It's a, it's a mysterious process where something emerges. We would say it's the power of the Holy Spirit. I get that. But it's, it's something that emerges out of us. It comes from nowhere. We don't know where it comes from. It comes from God, of course, but it, we can't ourselves put our finger on it. And it emerges through the narrative, and it gives us some kind of revealed truth that lies above the narrative. So you get a story like Feeding of the 5,000, and then you have to say, well, what does that tell us? What's the revealed truth above it? And we do that when we look at all of these, the details of the story, and start kind of making a collage of sorts. Now. There's power in this, and this is one of the it's one of the most powerful transformational things that happens when you when reading the Bible. And there's a phrase in Hebrew, the rabbis use it. It's called revelation from below. And I would and put it in Western terms, self-discovery. As you read your Bible and you begin to in, see the details, and something inside of you begins to see a truth emerging. It literally emerges within you. It's your own self-discovery. And that revealed truth, when you discover it yourself through the narrative, is significantly more powerful in transforming who you are. Someone could walk up from the outside and say, this is the, here's the details, and tell you the answer. But it doesn't always transform you. But when you have it transform from within to where you begin to realize something bigger is going on, it's, it, it'll transform you permanently. So we, you have both. You have things that come from above. You have things that come from below. But the ones that come from below are the ones that transform you permanently. They're very powerful.
I want to emphasize this because we often don't know what to do with narrative. And when we can start approaching narrative and, and look at it, look at all the details and allow truth to emerge, it's a very powerful way of reading the Bible. And I know you've all, you've all had this happen before. And you, maybe you just didn't, we didn't realize what was going on at the time. So when we take this narrative, we take something like the feeding of the 5,000, we immediately have to start asking questions. Where in the Old Testament? Because everything Jesus does is rooted in his Bible, the Hebrew Bible. You have cultural issues. What would the culture hear? High context. So they're speaking high context to a culture that hears things that if you're outside that culture, you don't. And you have to look at all of the details that are being provided. The space on that paper that those gospel writers are, have to use to write is precious. So they choose their details to tell you. If they put it in there, they're putting it in there for a reason. And then very often, you often have to go to just Jewish tradition. doesn't come from the Old Testament, but it's the way that they viewed it. And that can lead to some understanding about what the greater truth is that's being told. And this often is very enlightening to people when they begin to see even the traditions that are going on that aren't explicitly written in the Old Testament. So let's go now. That's just by way of very long introduction. We have two feeding stories. You guys are all familiar with these. The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. So we have to start asking questions. Where is this being drawn from? When Jesus does this, what do the people think? What's their reference point is not their mind. Their reference point is going to be the Old Testament. So the very first thing that scholars will point out is you immediately are reminded of two miraculous feeding stories that come out of the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, we all know them. It's manna. It's when God delivers the manna and the quail, Exodus 16 and Numbers 11. You get two miraculous feeding stories. Now, we're not going to go talk in detail about this, but the idea is God provides, it's, it's not only nourishment, food, it's spiritual food. That's what it represents. So when we see Jesus do a feeding miracle, is it simply nourishment, like physical nourishment, or is it spiritual nourishment? And the answer is yes, it's both. It's just like when God provided the manna and the quail for the, not only the physical nourishment, but the spiritual nourishment. So, immediately you have those two stories that you're picking up on, where God provides for the people of the, in the Old Testament. So, those stand out. If we, if we look at those Old Testament stories, one of the common themes that gets brought out of, especially in Matthew, is just like Moses is leading the people out of slavery, Jesus is a second Moses. So if you, if you read through Matthew, he goes up on a mountain to teach. Well, that's, Moses does that. You have the transfiguration where his face is glowing, and that's, that harkens back to Moses. You have someone who's going to lead the people out of a 
particular situation. So Jesus is seen as a type of Moses, someone who's going to bring them out of whatever condition they're in, and that's what Jesus does. Even in our own slavery, he is leading us in some sense like Moses did. You have Jesus as the Passover lamb. That comes out of the Moses story and Exodus. So you're, you're seeing that he's going to be doing the same thing that those things symbolize. And so then you could say, well, one greater than Moses is now here. You hear this, uh, you hear one greater than Solomon. You, people are looking for a prophet or the prophet. So they're always looking back to their, to their, their scripture, and they're saying, how is Jesus, as he shows up, showing up greater than the ones we've seen in the past? So, you know, we, we only look at Moses through the lens of Jesus. And his audience looked at Moses. He was the hero of their faith and the person who led them. And God was going to provide a prophet just like Moses. And of course, that is Jesus. But so this is the Old Testament. When we, the background to these two feeding stories is the feeding from the, the, during the Exodus. And that would bring you back to just like Moses is bring, working with God to bring manna from heaven, Jesus is now feeding the people. A second Old Testament, and this is on the, on the backside of your handout, number three is Elijah and Elisha. Now again, just like Moses, we view Elijah and Elisha through the lens of our New Testament, through Jesus, looking back to the to those two prophets, and we don't elevate them very much because we're elevating Paul and Peter and the and the gospel writers, and we're elevating Jesus. But in Jesus' day, Elijah and Elisha were the prophets, and that's who you emulated. That's who. The, the Old Testament is going to show God is going to be working through these prophets. And so when you get to this, this story is going to reflect something from Elisha. So Elijah and Elisha, heroes in the Jewish community. And over and over and over in our New Testament, people are going to compare John the Baptist to Elijah. It happens continually. He's coming in the power of Elijah. He's like, he's the Elijah that is to come that's going to announce the Messiah. And so there's a connection here to John the Baptist as Elijah, and then Jesus performing an Elisha feeding miracle. We'll talk more about this next week, but the death of John the Baptist is recorded, and then this miracle shows up. And in the Old Testament, when Elijah died, Elisha, his disciple, got a got double portion. So there's at least, if people think John the Baptist is Elijah, and the very next thing you see is a feeding miracle that is, a, is similar to Elisha feeding miracle, you're at least going to have a mental connection going on. It's telling you something. Jesus is greater than Elisha, or greater than the, the prophets. All right, so let's go. I want to read this Elisha feeding miracle. So if you have your Bible, we're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 4. And it's only three verses, and I'm going to get a little sip of water here. 
So 2 Kings 4, and I'll put it on the screen. You can even see the, the NIV gave it a title, Feeding of a Hundred. So we have a feeding story. It's a miraculous feeding story. And we're going to find some similarities between what the disciples say, what Jesus says, and what Elisha says. So starting at verse 42, a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley baked bread. Oh, I'm sorry. 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain along with some heads of new grain. So we have someone showing up with some bread. Elisha says, give it to the people to eat. It's very similar to what Jesus says in the sense, Jesus says, well, you feed them. So Elisha says, give it to the people to eat. And how do they respond? How can I set this before a hundred men? It's very similar to what the disciples say. This isn't going to do anything. We've got 5,000. There's 5,000 people. We've got two loaves of bread. Look at Elijah answers. But Elijah answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Now that's precisely what happens both in the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. The people eat, and there's some left over. Verse 44 then. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of God. Now that's a very, that's three verses in your Old Testament. But that miracle is huge in the minds of the, the first century Jewish people, because this is Elisha. This is, look at, look at what he's doing. This is amazing. And so it would stand out. It would be something that you would pay attention to. And now you have a similar one, similar meaning we kind of have the same thing happening, but then it's going to go to an exponential amount of people. So you go back to this Elijah, Elisha, and you have John the Baptist, always, they're always mentioning him as Elijah. And then this Elisha feeding miracle, which is very similar to what Jesus is going to do. And now you say, aha, Jesus is like the prophet to come. In fact, you know, Jesus fulfills all three of the cabinet member places within the government, right? He's the king, he's the prophet, and he's the high priest. He doesn't tell you he's prophet, priest, and king. He does things that tell you he's prophet, priest, and king. So he's a prophet greater than Elisha. He's a prophet like Jonah, but it's greater than Jonah. He's a king like Solomon, but he's greater than Solomon. They're constantly telling us this, but they're not doing it directly. This is no doubt, this is going to lend into our understanding of the feeding of the 4,000 or the 5,000 and the 4,000. So we don't often think Elijah, Elisha, but that's something that goes into it. Okay, so here's what I want to do. We're going to finish up by looking at, talk about these two miracles and some of the details that we'll look much closer at next week. We're not even going to read the stories today. We'll do that next week. You can read them during the week to help you. But we have two feeding stories. It, it reflects the Old Testament, God providing manna from heaven. It reflects the Elisha story, 
the feeding of the 100 people, for, uh, Elisha. Then we have to say, okay, where do these two feeding stories happen? What's the, what are the cultural details? Where do the feedings happen? What are the numbers are associated with it? And is there anything culturally relevant inside of those details? So if we look at the Sea of Galilee, right next to Capernaum in that northwest corner is where the feeding of the 5,000, 5,000, we'll see this next week, very important, 5,000 happens in that corner. Now, who lives in this corner of the Sea of Galilee? The religious Jews. So the religious Jews live on this side. One feeding event happens in their location. It's the feeding of the 5,000. The other feeding event happens somewhere on the other side of the lake, the Decapolis. And who lives in the Decapolis? The pagans. Aha! So we have two feeding stories. The feeding of the 5,000 happens in the religious Jews. The feeding of the 4,000 happens over in the Decapolis. Maybe that's telling us something, that the, the miracles are telling us something about who Jesus is or what Jesus is up to. We talk about, well, we did this a few weeks ago, but let's, the religious Jews, they're on the side, they're on that northwest corner. And you could say, for the religious Jews, how many tribes, how many Jewish tribes are there? There's 12. How many disciples are there? There's 12. So it's the land of the 12. There's 12 tribes. There's 12 disciples. So on that religious Jewish side of the lake, it's the land of the 12. But you go to the Decapolis side, the pagan side, and you say, well, who lives over there? And the answer is, and we'll do this again. Well, the answer is, it's the seven nations, the seven pagan nations. Where do we get that? I'll show you in a minute. But we have 12 tribes. We have seven nations. And as we look at these stories, these numbers are going to show up in the story themselves, in the detail of the narrative. So 12 tribes on one side, seven nations on the other side. A few weeks ago, we talked about this idea of the driven out ones. That, that, there's that little town that we have a question mark called Gergesa. What is Gerash? Many scholars think that what Mark is telling us is it's the land of the Gerushim. It's the land of the driven out ones, the expelled ones. So he's not naming a town. He's naming a location based on the people that live there. And you say, well, who are the Gerushim? Well, they're the nations that God drove out, drove out of Canaan when, when they showed up. So how many nations were there? Seven. So it's the land of the seven on that side, the seven nations that were driven out, Gerushim. Now, I put this on your sheet because we, I want to go there quickly. It comes from Deuteronomy 7.1. So in Deuteronomy... It talks about the, the driving out of the nations, Gerushim, the expelled ones. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And just in case you couldn't count them, the text goes on, the seven nations 
larger and stronger than you. How many nations were driven out? The seven nations. And then you go, okay, well, if I'm sitting over here on this side of the lake, and I'm in my Torah class, and I say to my rabbi, hey, rabbi, where did the, those seven nations given, dr get driven out to? He says, right over there, the place of the driven out ones, right across the lake. It's the Decapolis. It's the, where the pagans live. It's the seven nations. Now, it's not literal. They're using the geography for a lesson. Now, just, just to show you a way of let, let Scripture interpret Scripture, I, I also have on your sheet one text from Acts, because I want you to hear the way Paul talks about this event of the driven-out nations. So on the bottom of your sheet, on the backside, Acts 13, 19, Paul is giving a history lesson. He's in Antioch of Pisidia, and he's giving them one history lesson after the next. God did this, and God did that, and Abraham here. And then he says, and he, God, overthrew the seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. So when Paul thinks of this event, he thinks seven nations. Sometimes in the Old Testament, you have eight, sometimes you have six, but seven nations, seven's a number of completion. So as Paul recounts it, there's seven nations that got driven out. Where did they go? They went to the other side of the lake. They went to that Decapolis side. So here's what this, these two stories are going to look like. You have the feeding of the 5,000. It happens in the area of the religious Jews. It's 12 tribes. It's the land of the 12 tribes. And the 12 disciples, for that matter. And when we get to the end of the story, there's bread left over. How much bread is left over? 12 baskets. Coincidence? Well, let's look at the other feeding story. The feeding of the 4,000 happens over here on the, uh, on the, and in the Decapolis, on the Gentile, the pagan side. There's the pagans, those seven nations that were driven out. And then they get to the end of the story and they say, how many baskets are left over? Seven. And you think, okay, something is going on here. God has in the details. They don't ever tell you this. They're just putting it in the details. That Jesus is the bread of the world. For who? The Jews? Well, yes. But who else? The Gentiles. And so he does two miracles. And there's, two, there's bread left over for everybody. And then the numbers start telling the story. The details of the numbers start telling the story. We'll look, next, we'll look more next week as we read in detail the, the way they tell the story. How often they repeat the numbers. So this is remarkable. We'll never get that from our Bible. We have to pull that from the culture. And when we pull it from the culture, something begins to emerge. There's something, it's just a greater picture of those two feeding stories. And we'll talk more next week about how we can come to a conclusion about that. But it's one of the coolest things I, I've ever seen when I finally realized what those numbers, that those numbers mean something. They represent something bigger than just the story of what's going on. So, okay, so that is, that's introduction to the feeding miracles. We talked about the power of narrative. You, you look at all these details and allow the narrative to, the meaning to emerge. It emerges both individually and it emerges collectively as a society. 
or as our church community begins to see things in the text that are there that speak very powerfully to uh, the soul of a human being. But we have to know our Old Testament. We have to know some of the traditions around the Old Testament. We have to know the cultural, something about the culture, because it's often speaking in cultural language. And then when we do that, you start, something emerges that that's really can be an amazing picture. So that's feeding miracles. That's week of, or Sea of Galilee, week 11. Now week 12, we're going to come back to feeding the 5,000 and the feeding the 4,000. We'll review all of this and then look in detail at how they narrate those two stories to build a picture of what is going on in Jesus' ministry.